Amen. You are the love song we will sing forever. That song is very special to me. Um, it was sung on one of those most special days of my life. You might take a guess, anyone? I'll never forget that day in Chicago in 2001 when we did sing that song. I was standing in the presence of friends and family like a deer in the headlights, like we've seen many here, Jackson, <laughs> Timothy, you know, it's passing on the tradition of deer in the headlights, waiting, right, waiting. In came the bridesmaids. They were carrying these little oil lamps, symbolizing that all things were prepared for the bridegroom. The bride was indeed ready. In anticipation, I stood there waiting, and then there she was, stunning. A bride adorned for her groom, glorious. Her father walked her halfway up the aisle and then stopped. Not because he had second thoughts, praise the Lord. It was planned, <laughs> and I waited. I waited for those words. And then my father, who was my best man standing just behind me, said, Son, go get your bride. And I walked down, and my heart <laughs> fled quick, but my steps kept me. And I took her from her father joyfully, receiving my bride. One of the most important moments in my life. I don't know if anyone has ever been to a wedding where a, you've heard the father say, son, go get your bride. Uh, we had never seen it done, ever. But as we talked and we prayed, we knew that earthly marriage was and is a mirror of a greater spiritual reality, a greater truth of God and his people. And we wanted to capture just a small picture of that day when the father will say to his son, go get your bride. Right. In Jewish culture, uh, when a couple was engaged, uh, son would build the house and get everything ready. He didn't know the day or the hour, right? When it was all prepared and it was all ready, the father, son, get your bride. I mean, just that excitement, that joy. That's how I picture it. Uh, whether it will happen that way, I don't know. But I know that Jesus will come for his bride. We see this day pictured in Revelation 19 when the roar of the multitude proclaims, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We hear it again in Revelation 21, verse 9, when one of the angels says to John, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is new covenant language used to describe our relationship with God, or more precisely, Jesus' relationship to His church, because the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. What comes to mind when you think about the church as a bride? When you picture yourself as a bride, 
Often that's an easier picture for the young ladies or the women among us. One of my Ugandan fathers, he said, I always struggle with that picture. (laughs) It's hard to imagine myself as a bride. And I would jokingly tell him, well, you know, in Scripture, the language of adoption uses the language of sonship, inheritance through sonship. Though you can translate it sons and daughters, it really is sonship imagery. And I'd say, you know, just, just, uh, just enjoy the richness of the biblical language because the church is pictured as bride. And it's crucial for us to grasp this truth. What does it mean that you are a part of the bride? And what does it mean that we together are a part of the bride? Because God has made the church to be his bride. And so let's pray as we enter into this glorious image together. Lord, it is sweet to gather. These have been wonderful songs to worship and enjoy you together. To proclaim You are the love song that we will sing forever. Blessed be your name above all names. Lord, would you captivate us this day? Would you stir in our hearts fresh faith and eyes to see and to behold you? And hearts that would understand, right? Minds to understand. Lord, that you would make known to us the glorious truths of your word and and show us what that means for us as we live together as your family as we walk before you as your treasured bride. Amen. In Jesus' name. Last week, we looked together at the church as family. That was great. I thought about that picture all week. I don't, did you? It, just, it sort of just seeped within. Even as, as I was preparing for this, thinking about the church as bride, I just couldn't get away from family, right? Because God has designed the church to be the place where his fatherhood is displayed and made known, where it's reflected, where Jesus is revealed through adopted sons and daughters living out this gospel and his truth together. We saw last week, and we heard that the wounds of broken family are healed in family. And God has given us family as a great gift. It's even the place where our own selfish and sinful hearts are revealed, where the glorious grace and goodness of Jesus is put on display for everybody to see, even though it can feel so hard. And the privilege that we have together as sons and daughters, because we're a part of something bigger than biological family. We're a part of something bigger. We're a part of an eternal family. Because God has placed us into family, He has made us family together, and this should shape us as we come together for the gathering of God's people. But, even as we long for family, even as we long for belonging and relationship, even as our hearts in this longing are to love and to be loved in the context of family, as we grow, something changes, something happens, right? As, as you grow through your teenage years, into your, into your late teens, into your 20s, into your 30s, begin to actually long for love outside of the context of family, to know love and to give love and to receive love. And we find that coming into the context then of marriage and the creation of new families. And it's significant then that these two images the church's family and the church's bride and the marriage picture 
are given as foundations for understanding who we are together. John Frame, one of my favorite current theologians, he said this. He said, while family stresses the intimacy of life in the church, there is even greater intimacy in the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. A wonderful picture which we see in both testaments. Frame points us to the reality that this beautiful picture runs throughout Scripture. It's demonstrated from Genesis through Revelation. So today we're going to begin sort of getting some Old Testament foundations, and then we're going to move into the New Testament and specifically see what this means for us. So we want to begin our journey of understanding the image of the church as bride right back at the very beginning, right in Genesis chapter 2. Because it's in Genesis chapter 2 where God first made Eve from Adam and then brought her to Adam. If you want to turn there, we've already preached through this text, so I'm not going to spend much time. Um, we're going to jump through a number of passages as we sort of survey some of these foundational pieces to help us understand this, this image together. In Genesis chapter 2, we, found that, we find that after God uh, made Eve and brought her back to Adam, uh, he then gives this incredible poem in Genesis 2.23. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then even though she didn't have parents, Moses wants us to know this. Therefore, a man shall leave. Well, he didn't have parents, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. God took one, made two, and then took two who were then made one. And that's a mystery because one plus one equals one here, right? In marriage, one plus one equals one. Don't argue with your math teacher, though. They, they won't receive that. Um, but in, in this reality, there's a uniqueness of oneness that God has designed in marriage, where two are made one together. Why did God design this? Why did he give this gift of marriage? Why did he create a bride and a bridegroom? Why did he make it deeply spiritual with a mystery of oneness, of intimacy and love? Especially if in this intimate relationship, there is a fragility that can bring great destructive harm and pain into lives as well. And God gave this because God is the true husband and pursuer of his people. And I want you to hear that. God is the true husband and pursuer of his people. He made his people to know him. Not simply to know about God, not just intellectual knowledge, of him, but to know him in the intimacy of relationship. Or as 1 John puts it, that our fellowship might be with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham, 
to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, God has consistently revealed himself, made himself known to his people, and pursued his people in relationship. This is evident right from the beginning of God's covenant love towards his people. He revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and he declared his name. And as he declared his name, he said in Exodus chapter 34 that he is the Lord, the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Hebrew term there, hesed, you've heard me refer to that many times. It's one of my favorite words in the whole Bible. He's a God abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And that term hesed, right, that is God's faithful, loyal, covenant love towards his people. He makes that known. He himself defines what true love is. It's more than a feeling. It's more than an emotion. At the heart of true love is hesed. It is God's faithful, loyal, covenant love, and it is abounding in mercy and grace. This is who he is. And he wants his people to know this, even as it's pictured in an earthly way. This is who he is towards his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 got ahead of myself. He states that his people are expected to listen and to obey God. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 7. He says, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the hesed, the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. Do you see who God is? He's a God who loves his people and who blesses. He's the covenant-keeping God. And his people are to reciprocate. They are to respond to that love in the same way. And that's where we see in Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is what he writes. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. You see that word there, holding fast to him. Everybody see that? God calls his people to respond to him using the same word that we find in Genesis 2, as Adam is to cleave to his wife, as the two are are one in relationship. God calls his people to cling to God, respond to his love, holding fast to him, clinging to him, loving him. And that is why Joshua told the people of Israel in Joshua 23, before he died, he said, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, if you make marriages with them, you see that linkage? So that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. So very similar to our, our previous text, and here he makes it clear. If you're clinging to the nations, if you're clinging to their gods, to their idols, ultimately entering into marriages with them, and there's, again, there's that linkage, right? Those are so closely related. What's the point then? 
The point is that physical marriage is an earthly image of a greater spiritual reality. Okay? We were made for a greater marriage. When we cling to the gods of our culture, when we cling to the idols of our land or to stuff, when we put ourselves at the center and judge by our own eyes, when we are enslaved to passion of, for our own love, when we are, are driven by our own emotions, uh, thinking that love is simply a whimsical feeling, we are actually diving headlong into spiritual harlotry against God, believing the enemy's lies and pursuing our own pleasure is ultimately spiritual harlotry. And that's what the Old Testament is linking for us. It wants us to make this connection. And that's exactly what Israel did again and again from the time of David, the division of the kingdom of Israel to the north and to the south. God sent his prophets to call them back to Israel and to reveal to them the spiritual harlotry that they were committing. Because God is the true husband over his people, who are his bride. And though the Old Testament hasn't come out and said it that clearly yet, we've seen the image building and building. It's, it's present, it's real, it's there. And then the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene. Look at Isaiah chapter 54. If you want to turn there, feel free. If not, I'll put it here on the Maybe not. <laughs> I guess we're turning there. Isaiah 54. Or you can listen to me read it. This is what God spoke to his people through one of the earlier prophets, Isaiah. He says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. And then listen how clear it is. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Did you hear that? God, our Maker. God, our Redeemer. God, the true husband of His people. Another prophet came on the scene around the same time as Isaiah. I always wonder if they knew each other, if they would have been able to talk. It would be amazing. If you flip just a few books ahead, you'll find Hosea, the first of the book of the 12, or what we call the 12 minor prophets. And in the book of Hosea, something crazy occurs, something radical, because God commands his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. You're like, What? How could God do that? That seems crazy. And it is crazy. And it's supposed to seem crazy. 
Because if we don't understand the greater spiritual reality of God as husband to his people, then it does seem just terrible. But when we do understand our own spiritual harlotry, right? The places where we turn to satisfy ourselves outside of God, the things that we run after, the sin that we believe really will satisfy us, that which we give ourselves over to in hopes that it'll make us happy, even if for a moment, when we really grasp our own desperate need of God, that's when this story, Hosea, becomes precious. Because we recognize that just as God says to Hosea in chapter 1, verse 2, go take to, your, to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Listen to what he says. For the land commits great whoredom, forsaking the Lord. So he went and he married Gomer. And we recognize that, that Gomer is picturing Israel. And that Gomer is a picture of us in our own unfaithfulness in our own wandering, in our own pursuits of our own pleasures. And yet, what does God picture through Hosea? That he is the God who pursues his bride. He's the God who pursues his people. And we find this beautiful language. This will finish our Old Testament sort of just skimming, right, in chapter 2. We find this great love that God has for his people when he says through the prophet in Hosea 2 verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. Right? No more my Baal. It's Yahweh. It's God, the one who is my husband. God says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. She, she, uh, they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. And this is a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things on the ground. I will abolish the bow. And I think this ties back into the Noah covenant that we preached on just a few weeks back. All right, this, is, this is all encompassing. I'm going to abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And then listen to this marriage language. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you hear it? It's marriage language. I will allure her. I will betroth you to me forever. And you'll know the Lord. The very last verse of that chapter says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And you shall say, you are my God. So when did this happen? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear from Romans 9. The Apostle Peter makes it clear from 1 Peter 2. This is the new covenant. God was picturing 
to his people something he was going to do radically in the future. And this came about because Jesus is the true bridegroom who came for his bride. And though she might seem like an unfaithful bride, though she might seem tainted by the world, God alone can take a spiritual harlot and make her as pure as pure can be from faithless Israel to virgin Israel. How? How can this happen? How can one polluted with sin and harlotry, unfaithful and unclean, be made pure and clean before God? Do you know the answer? The Gospels, they tell us something incredible. That just as God sent Hosea to pursue Gomer, God sent His Son Jesus to pursue His bride, to win for himself his bride. And, and this is language that we're going to find now coming into the New Testament. But lest you think it just dropped out of the sky, it's building on this entire foundation. When Jesus declares that he is the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9, this is who he is. John 3, John the Baptist also refers to Jesus as the bridegroom because the Old Testament is being fulfilled. The new has come. God has come for his people. Jesus is the one who will take a bride for his own possession. And he is unlike any bridegroom who's ever existed. Because he loved the church and he gave himself up for her. We read Ephesians 5 almost at every wedding. We preach Ephesians 5. Anytime we preach on marriage, pretty much. Ephesians 5 is our go-to. We should all have it memorized by now. And yet it doesn't get old. It's miraculous and it's glorious because it takes us from the image of the earthly picture into the greater heavenly reality of a God who passionately loves his people and who to take his bride and to win her and to make her beautiful, he lays down his life for her. Ephesians says it so beautifully. If you want to hear it, feel free to, to listen or even to turn there. I just want to read it. Just let it wash over you that this is the reality of our God. He says, husbands, love your wives. This is Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we could stop there. Let's just preach on that. That's a full message. But it's taking us somewhere. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I love the picture of this. This is really an ongoing and lifelong picture. This is what Jesus does for his bride. He will present her spotless. He is washing her. He, he is cleansing her. He is nourishing and cherishing her. That is Jesus' posture towards his people. I don't know how you picture God towards you. 
We talked last week about picturing God as father, how scary that can be if we've had a terrible earthly father. And if you've had a, a terrible husband, it can be a terrible picture. If you saw your father as a terrible husband, that can be a terrible picture. Do I want Jesus as husband? And yet the scripture comes and says he is unlike any bridegroom that's ever existed because he dies for his bride and because he is committed to washing her daily. It is what he does. He cleanses her. He leads her to increase in beauty. And at the end of days, she will be presented glorious. Do you picture that? Have you ever been around an older couple and you see a wife in her old age and you think to yourself, she is beautiful. You tell her that and she's like, no, no. There's pictures of me in my 20s. You want to see those? That was beautiful. And you're like, no. No, you are beautiful because there is something glorious about watching when a wife is loved and nurtured and cherished and washed in the word. And you think I'm saying just by a husband, by Christ and hopefully imaged and done through an earthly husband. There's something about her in her older years that is more glorious and more beautiful because she's grown young in her beauty, even as her body has aged. And it's the same for a man. You see men in their old, older years, and you go, wow, he is handsome. And he's like, uh, maybe not. No, <laughs> yes, right? Because there's something beautiful being pictured. I wish I could have known Anne better. In the short years we had, the little bit of getting to know her, wasn't she beautiful? I don't, I don't think anybody here would say that she was. She was glorious. Beautiful presented before her groom, Jesus. The moment she died, she was the presence of her true bridegroom, even with her earthly husband who loved her and cherished her and cared for her. This is a beautiful picture for us. Right? This is what is being imaged in the church as the bride. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has loved you unlike anyone can or will love you. Jesus has loved you. He is the satisfier of your soul. And he is the one that your heart longs for. In the midst of your own unfaithfulness, Jesus has been faithful. Through his death and resurrection, you are cleansed. Confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what he does. This is who he is. Forgive. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are pursued. You are accepted. And if you're in Christ, you're part of a greater marriage, just as you've been placed into a greater family. Isn't that good news, brothers and sisters? It is good news. Why does it seem so hard to believe it? Because the hardest work of the human heart is to believe the gospel and all that it says. I want to give you a few short implications of this greater marriage. Just a few things for us. Personal, and then we'll think about it corporately. All right, so personal implications. And the first is that earthly marriage and intimacy, then, is a pointer to a greater oneness in God. 
And Paul does that for us in Ephesians 5 because he goes on to talk about uh, the reality of, of Jesus nourishing and cherishing the church. We're members of his body. That will be for next week. Then he says in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that Genesis reference that we started with. And Paul weaves it in right here into earthly marriage to say this in verse 32. This mystery, right? Two becoming one. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see she respects her husband. All right, that's important. (laughs) Don't forget that. But it's Christ in the church. Earthly marriage as a shadow of a greater heavenly reality. We were made for Christ, for oneness in God. What God designed and unveiled in Genesis 3 is a shadow of a greater spiritual reality. We're made for a greater oneness. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, with this whole foundation, with this background in place, listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Physical, okay? It's your physical bodies. You're members of Christ, right? He's a greater bridegroom, greater husband. He says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Answer, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality, right? Flee it, because you're ultimately sinning against your own body, and because you have a bridegroom who has purchased you and owns you. You are for him. Flee sexual morality. And Paul uses this language of oneness with God, right? Joined to the Lord. And that's the implication. Sexual sin is never disconnected from a greater spiritual reality. You've got to put that right into our, the back of our heads. We've got to put that as an anchor to the soul. As you face any temptation in that area, it is deeply spiritual. And there is much at stake And it always carries a great cost. Even in a godly marriage, our true longings ultimately are satisfied in Christ. Your spouse will be happiest when you give them the thing they long for the most. And that's Jesus. That's when you'll be happiest. And you'll watch Him changing his bride, and making her beautiful before your eyes. Second, earthly marriage is temporary. The greater marriage is eternal. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30, let's see if I put it up there, no. He gave these shocking words. He says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're like angels in, in heaven. And you go, wait, 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 what? You know, after... 20, 40, 50 years of being married, how can we not be married in heaven? And it's not 
as if you're going to experience less intimacy. You're not going to experience less love. It's not like we're going to be strangers. <laughs> oh, yeah, were we married once? <laughs> it's not like that. The, the oneness and the glory of intimacy that you get to experience will be multiplied times 10, 100,000. Start squaring it, cubing it. I don't know. All right, it's going to just keep going because together you're in Christ and you are satisfied in the one who made you to know him. And you will know one another in Christ without sin, without that stupid flesh, without the barrier that immediately is created by being married in a fallen world. It will be greater. You hear that? And that is good news because there is a greater marriage and you will experience the glory of unity and oneness with God's people in God together. We want to lay hold of that lest we exalt or even idolize marriage because earthly marriage is temporary the greater marriage is eternal third we were made to know and abide in the love of christ now, that's not surprising but it's something that we have to let sit on us as we think about the church as bride as you picture yourself as a part of Christ's people. Listen to these words from John 15. I love these. These are words, that, you know, there's certain passages I come back to again and again, right? Psalm 63, I'm always coming back to Psalm 63. John 15, I'm consistently drawn back into this because here's where Jesus invites us. He says in John 15, verse 9, this is mind-blowing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And you go read 1 John because John takes that language and he just keeps building on it. I want you to have full joy. And so get a hold of all these truths. You read 1 John. All right? That's the heart here. It's an invitation. Abide in my love. Swim in it. Be surrounded with it. Breathe it. Know it. Live it. Abide in my love, church. Abide in my love. Know it that your joy may be full. And I love that theme of joy because we long for it. That's what unveils sin is sin. It never brings joy. It never does, ever. It only robs. It only fills us with junk, deadens even our, our hunger and desire for what is good. The angels, when they announced the birth of Christ, it was good news of great joy. Throughout the book of Acts, we hear that believers in Christ were filled with, can you guess? Joy. Even in their suffering, they were filled with joy because they were partaking in the love of Christ. Through his sufferings, they were filled with joy. Joy. If you are in a joyless season, and we have those seasons, you just think, what happened? Where's my joy? If you're in a joyless season, let your heart be wooed back in love for your Savior. Know his love because we were made to grow in love with Jesus, 
to grow more beautiful or more handsome in Him, by God, for God. You were made for love in relationship with Him. Come and experience joy. We were made to know and abide in the love of Christ. Let me give a couple of practical applications for the church. Just in these, the reality of these truths for us. First, for us as a body, and this is important, right? just as we want to push each other in, in that reality of, of love, we want to strive to present one another as a pure virgin to Christ. And you're like, Keith, what are you... Wait, 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 wait. You just said Jesus is the one who washes and cleanses and he will present her beautiful, right? That's his work. And it's what the Holy Spirit does. It's who he is at work within us. And that is true. But in that reality, we are then called to image that or to reflect that together. And I want you to listen. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me see if I put it there. Yes. He says this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Isn't that great? Did you hear his passion for the church? All right, I'm jealous for you. I, I have a divine passion for you because you have been betrothed to one husband, and that is Jesus. And my labor among you is to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul knows that it's God's work. He knows it's what Christ is going to do. He knows the truth that the bride will be beautiful. And yet in that is the labor to see her made beautiful. So as we come together, we want to be a part of of passionately pushing one another to satisfaction and love in Christ. That's how we have to view ourselves as we come into the gathering, as we get involved in each other's lives. Do you picture one another as the bride of Christ? Do you look around and see Jesus' love and affection set on that one who can be so annoying and frustrating? <laughs> Do you? Whether it's in your own family or outside of it, if it's in this family, this is one whom Jesus set his affection on. This is one he died for. This is one that he is pursuing and will be made beautiful and is beautiful in Christ. Second, remember that we are a waiting bride. Okay, so right now, through His Spirit, Jesus is wooing and winning a global bride from among all the nations. We prayed for the church in India. We love that. We love seeing God at work. It's, it's who He is at work in the nations. We want to live in a way that proclaims the truth of the day when He will come for His bride. And we want to invite others to know the love and satisfaction that are in Jesus because we are a waiting bride. I love how the end of Revelation says this, right at the very end, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Love the global bride and long for the coming of the bridegroom. Third, don't idolize earthly marriage and don't devalue earthly marriage. Don't go on either of those sides because they are both beautiful, 
because earthly marriage is beautiful, both earthly marriage and singleness, one who is living their lives radically for the sake of the kingdom. We exalt that and say, wow, both of these, earthly marriage and singleness, radically lived, contentment in Christ, spiritual sons and daughters, you've heard us use that language. Both are beautiful. That's what drives us into 1 Corinthians 7. That's what makes sense of a kingdom paradigm where both of these are held together, not in tension. They're two separate pictures. So we don't idolize, but don't devalue it because earthly marriage is glorious an earthly marriage through singles, living for a greater marriage is beautiful. We want to understand that dynamic that's at work here. Lastly, we want to grow in love for the church as the bride of Christ, trusting he will present her spotless. And so I'm just going to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you love the church? Do you? Do you love Jesus? Are you growing in your affection for Him and your desire to be with God's people? If you're not growing in a desire to be with God's people, then the love of Christ is being choked out within you. And it is so easy to live a deceptive version of, of this truth, which says, me and Jesus, I don't want people. I don't need people. Right? Just as last week, He's made us family he has made us bride together. Do we love Christ's people? Are we growing together? Jesus' warning to the church in Ephesus is very, very good for us as we close. Just thinking about this reality of bride and what it means to live this out together. Jesus says to this church, and I know I've quoted a lot of scripture, right? This is like a scripture uh, fire hydrant. All right, you get to go back and listen to it online if you need. This is a lot, right? This could have been 10 sermons and how to, how, to, how to capture this for us. But I just want you to see that this is deeply rooted in scripture, deeply rooted for the good of our hearts. But then Jesus warns the church of Ephesus in Revelation I think it's in three. He says, I have this against you. All right? This is after praising their patient endurance. They can't bear with those who are evil. Right? They, they stand for good doctrine. Hallelujah. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Some will translate it, you've abandoned your first love. You can look at it from two different angles, two different sides. Um, They've abandoned the love they had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Right? Like one who is in love with his, his bride and he'll do anything. Right? There's a freshness to love and a zeal to serve and to do. And Jesus is calling his church back to that. These truths should shape how we approach the gathering. They should shape our own lives and how we come to the Lord. And so do we understand each week that we gather here, something dynamic is happening. Do we understand that really? As God's people gather, we are gathering ourselves on the center, on Christ. We're being washed in His Word. We're engaging in the family of God towards God our Father and with Jesus our true bridegroom. We are pursuing satisfaction in Christ together because we need Him and we need each other as we need Him. If we're hurting, 
May we find ointment in this healing family. If we are wandering and straying in sin, may we find rebuke in love and a call back to Christ and the truth of the gospel. If we're healthy and strong, may we be strengthened to continue growing and pressing on to maturity. May we long for each other to behold the bridegroom and to be prepared for him because the church is family and we are a waiting bride. May we stir one another up in these truths to love and good works as we await our bridegroom together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is a joy to get to proclaim your truth, but I, I'm also aware my own shortcoming to just make simple and beautiful that which you have made simple and beautiful, and yet you've made it gloriously deep and, and wide. And It is your message from the, from the very beginning of, of creation and and your creation of, of Adam and Eve right up to this moment where we get to be a part of your people together. Your church, your bride, whom you love, whom you've laid down your life for. Lord, may we respond to you in repentance and faith and trust. May we as a people stir one another, longing to see each other presented before you. Beautiful. And may we long to see this in the global church. May we lay down our lives with our brothers and sisters in India. We're right here for the truth of Christ and your kingdom and your glory. Because we are a people living for a greater marriage. May you strengthen us in our earthly marriages. In our singleness, may you strengthen those who are single. Submitting their hearts and lives to you in our midst. Together, may we declare the greatness of our bridegroom, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are at work in this body. Blessed be your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.